Well, let's, let's go ahead and get started then. Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about this semester um, because, uh, and I'm going to apologize right now because we're going to start off by uh, backing up the dump truck. <laughs> there is a lot of historical information that it's important that as we start taking a look at the Apostle Paul, we need to be able to put all of this in context. Uh, we need to know what was going on. I, sometimes our problem with looking back in history is that we don't see it through their eyes, we see it through our eyes, called presentism. We expect it will be in the present the way that it was in the past, and then we don't understand why people are doing what they're doing. Well, in this case, we've got, Paul is going to be one of those things that uh, is really going to be pretty critical. Um, let me mention one other thing in conjunction with this. One of the advantages that we had with uh, last semester is that in some ways we were kind of paralleling come follow me. We're a little bit behind, but so it's going to look like as we're looking at the Apostle Paul, there's like, okay, we're going to be over here and come follow me with Book of Mormon is going to be over here. You're going to be really amazed at how often they cross over. And that an understanding of Paul is going to really open up the Book of Mormon. Uh, can I give you a real quick example? Um, the Apostle Paul is going to talk in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, and I think it's 15, I think. He's going to talk about how there are two, there are two kinds of people. There's, an, there's a heavenly person and an earthly people, an earthly person. And he calls that earthly person the natural man. And he talks about how the natural man doesn't mean that the natural man is, was born evil. It's just that he was, the natural man was uh, evilized, <laughs> contaminated by the, the world around him. And that to him is the natural man. It's somebody who has been uh, affected by the natural mortality stuff around them. Okay, now, I, I completely believe that when Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon and he's getting to Mosiah, King Benjamin's speech, and King Benjamin goes into the natural man is an enemy to God, I think, I think he has in his head Paul. I think those two begin to connect. That it isn't like the natural man is like born evil, it's the natural man is born good and then gets, um, gets caught up in worldly things. Do, does that make sense? So I think as we study Paul, it should unlock Book of Mormon, uh, if, if you can see it that way. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So that said, let's start off with a little bit of, of history. We need to, because uh, we finished... In the last semester, we were talking about uh, the crucifixion, we were talking about the resurrection, and, and everything that came with that. And, and in our world, we tend to go, okay, that's what happened, and then it was done, and Peter did a couple of things, and then we're really kind of, our, our history in, the, in, in LDS focus, looking at the Bible kind of goes, <laughs> it's done. We're, we're not really good after that. Okay, so... 
That's going to be one of the joys of studying this semester with Paul and everything is we get to kind of construct what these people believed in the first century, um, different maybe than what we think. So here's the, here's the post-resurrection church. Jesus dies about 29 or 30. We think he was born maybe around 3 or 4 B.C. Um, so he dies there. Uh, the believers, uh, followers of the way, are located almost completely in Palestine, uh, mainly in Judea. There's even not a lot going on in Galilee because the first little bit they're concentrated uh, down low. Uh, and then as we're going to talk a lot in, in just a minute about the stoning of Stephen. Uh, persecution, though, is beginning. There's the pushback. There's that belief the Jews said that we killed off Jesus, they should go away. <laughs> they're not going away. It's similar to what happens in uh, New York Times uh, at the death of Joseph Smith. Their headline was in the New York Times, Thus Endeth Mormonism. <laughs> we finally got rid of this guy. We expect him to be done, and, and he keeps coming back. Okay? Well, they had thought that they had stamped out this Jesus sect, and now it, it just seems to be picking up steam uh, rather than going away. And so now we're going to have to start persecuting here. Now, the other thing you need to be aware of, uh, obviously we're not getting... The Jewish revela uh, revolution, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple and everything, begins in 66 AD and then it completes in 70 with the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Masada. Uh, but by the 30s, as we start getting into this period of time, zealots are already pushing back against the Romans. They're, they're, they're fomenting. They're fomenting. And we're going to talk about Paul. At one point, the uh, centurion in Jerusalem is going to go, they're trying to get you. And then he says, Paul, are you that Egyptian? Are you that Egyptian that takes thousands of people out to the, the Sinai um, and, and who are called the sect called the Sakari. Well, the Sakari, the, the name for Sakari is the Daggerman. And, and I, we've talked about it before. The Daggerman had these short, curved daggers. And they could hide them underneath their cloak. And they would go out like in the Feast of Tabernacles or Passover when, when the streets are really full and they would find a, a leader that they didn't particularly like and they could get up next to him in the crowd, pull out their dagger and, and stab him and they knew exactly how to do it the, with a minimum of blood, maximum death, and then slide that Sakari knife back in and they would drop dead and then they might be the first ones to go, wow, somebody's killed the member of the Sanhedrin. You know, and so the, the Sakari were kind of these early Jewish terrorists. That, and so there was a fear. The, 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 the Romans were a little bit on edge about the fact that there was a pushback going on here. Gosh, they weren't doing it in Ephesus or Corinth or anything, but Jerusalem, they're, they're, these guys are just pushing it. Okay, and we'll, we'll talk about in a second why that begins to be really important. Yes. Yeah, in fact, remember that the zealots actually facilitated the fall of Jerusalem because as they kind of pulled in behind the walls, the zealots burned all the foodstuffs and, and, and made it worse. 
Okay? Because they wanted to bring the second coming, the Messiah back. Certainly the Essenes believe that. But anyway, okay. Now, so in order to survive, th th think about how this works. So in 66 AD, the, the Jerusalem is going to be is going to fall. If the church is just in around Judea and Jerusalem, what will happen to the church? It'll be lost, right? So somehow, in order for the church to survive, we've got to find a way to pick up the church. We've got to move it somewhere else where it will be immune from what's about to happen in the next couple of decades in Israel. It's got to be moved. Well, that's where Paul comes in. But in order to survive, the church will need to be moved out of Palestine into the wilderness. And that's what Revelations 12 will say, that the woman went into the wilderness where she was nurtured for a time. She'll be nurtured by Catholicism and, and, and uh, Orthodoxy and, and the Middle Ages. She's going to be nurtured. She's, the church is kept alive. The flame still burns. All right. Now, interesting thing also. I don't know if we necessarily thought about this. Remember that we read in the first part of Acts that they start doing like the law of consecration? We're going to have all things in common. We eat at a common table which is going to be a problem for Paul down the road. But we're going to eat at a common table. We're going to pull all of our resources together and we have everything in common. Very nice. How did that work for the church in Missouri? Why? Why, why did the law of consecration work? They weren't quite sure, and they're, they're kind of that natural manness. Some people were working harder than others, right? Yeah? So the law of consecration works when all people put the interests of others ahead of their, themselves, and it never works when people are selfish yeah. and put their own interests ahead of those around them. And in Missouri, they just couldn't pull it off. The other one was that in Missouri, then that means we only buy at our own stores. We only purchase from one another. We get really clingy and, and clicky. So now the people around you aren't real happy with you. And, and part of what happened is within the first couple of, of uh, years after the death of Christ, they pulled all their stuff together. They sold their lands and everything to, to take care of one another. And then they had a drought. And they started to starve. And one of the first missions that Paul has to go on is raising money in the other churches to bring it back to save the Jerusalem branch. Because what happens is having all things in common actually weakened the church in there so that they couldn't make it through a drought. They couldn't fight their way through any problems. Okay? So what seemed like a good idea actually hurt them. Yeah. The pure, yeah, with the pilgrims and Puritans. No, no. So it, it comes with it comes fraught with problems, especially if you're not knowing how to do it well, right? Weren't quite doing it. Even the women up there were having to uh, wash clothes for other people that were 
are not their own because they're our family. Would it make sense to you that this is probably similar to what's happening here? So again, put it in context and you start to say these are real people with this very real goal, kind of a zealous goal, but it, it's, it's not working. Okay? So, uh, here, here's... So, so if, if you start taking a look at, at the things that are going to go on in this first century in the church, especially the first couple of decades, uh, just like the church under Joseph Smith, the early church was an imperfect mix of good people just trying to figure things out. And sometimes they did it well and sometimes they did it not so well. Sound like your ward? <laughs> just trying to figure out how to do it and sometimes it works and sometimes it's a mess and, and uh, they really were struggling with that and, and it's going to drive Paul crazy and we will certainly hear from him on that Okay, alright uh, so, so this is in the first little bit after uh, post resurrection now so now let's put one more piece in place Let's go out to uh, Tarsus, which is over here on the coast, uh, Turkey, Asia, down here. And Tarsus is this little town up here, but it's right on the coast. Come down the coast here, then you get to Caesarea, and you get Israel is right here. Okay? So Tarsus is up here. A couple of things about Tarsus. Uh, it's one of those areas that was conquered by Alexander the Great. Uh, we know that Alexander the Great came through Tarsus. Uh, it became to be, it was a relocation site for enslaved Jews. When the Greeks were going in, remember how the Romans would just leave, leave things how they are when they conquer a, a country. Okay, the Greeks, like sometimes the Syrians, had this tendency to want to pick people up and move them somewhere else. One of the one of the more strict Jews or strict Greeks, uh, uh, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, was literally conquering cities in Jerusalem or in Judea and then moving them wholesale out of town. He was trying to de-Jew Jerusalem <laughs> and de-Jew Palestine make it more Greek. That's why he put a, Rome, a temple of Zeus or a, a statue of Zeus in the temple. He's trying to Hellenize Israel. That's why he gets overthrown. But in the process he's moving people and he's enslaving them. And, and our belief is that um, that Paul's either parents or grandparents were enslaved uh, Jews that have been taken to Tarsus. They were originally from Judea. We'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. Okay? Alright, so this area is uh, freed by uh, Pompey, or Pompey, depending on how you want to pronounce that, in 42, when they're conquering the Greeks. Here they come. It becomes the meeting place for Antony and Cleopatra, uh, because you've got this beautiful seashore there. Uh, and it becomes a cultural center, though, for Greek philosophy. Romans loved Greek philosophy. And so as they got this beautiful sea area, this seaport, they start to build it up, and it rivals Athens, and it rivals Alexandria. It is a center for Greek thought and Greek understanding and Greek culture. 
And so it's a wonderful place of Greekness. Okay? Now, so here's so there's that piece. Now let me add one more. We'll zero in a little bit. Now we have Saul, who grows up in Tarsus. Now again, we believe that his parents or grandparents were libertines, meaning that they were freed men. They had what would happen in a case like this is if you're like an indentured servant that's going to be brought into some of these areas, what happens is, is you can buy your freedom. So how are they going to buy their freedom? Well, they start a successful business. And there's this black, black uh, sheep that had this wonderful black wool in the mountains around Tarsus. And they started taking this black wool and weaving it together to make tents. Okay, so the tents, the, the black wool tents of Tarsus were, were well thought of and sold well in the rest of the empire. So it makes sense that if you want to make a lot of money, you make tents from this black wool. And it turns out that his parents, uh, or maybe grandparents, somewhere in there started a successful business got it rolling, uh, this was enough that they were able to buy their freedom and become actually quite wealthy. So the belief is at this point that they were, and they're also devout Pharisees. So they have a, they have a son, uh, Paul, or Saul, who's going to be born in Tarsus, that makes him a Roman citizen, uh, but he's very, very Jewish, uh, and and he has this. He grows up very wealthy uh, and very highly educated. He's going to get an upper crust education, so he's going to understand Greek philosophy. He's reading the Greek philosophers, uh, and he has the money, and he has the wealth, and he's good at his craft. Now, if you're a family in Tarsus and you have this bright sterling student who is just studying everything and remembering everything and he seems to be zealous and excited and you want him to become the Pharisee of Pharisees the best of the best and he gets to be about 13 what are you going to do with him? Send him, to Jerusalem. Send him off to Jerusalem why? to study under who? There are only two really great um, there are two great schools at the time and one of them is Gamamiel and Gamamiel was a Jew out of Syria out of Babylon he is and, and so you got this place where Jews that didn't grow up in Jerusalem come and we're going to study philosophy and so he's going to be sent off to boarding school Send him off to Jerusalem to study under this great man. Okay? And, and Gamaliel is also a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and we're, as we're going to talk about in a second, it's a, it's a possibility then that ultimately Paul is able to become either a member of the Sanhedrin or very closely associated with the Sanhedrin. But, and it would make sense because here they've got this very wealthy, well paid for, highly educated, highly articulate, 
bright kid that shows up and studies for years under, under Gamamiel. Okay? Now, one, one side note. Gamamiel, and we actually have it in the book of Acts, when the Christians, the way, is cranking up, Gamamiel is kind of saying, well, you know what? If they really are Jewish, if they really are who they say they are, then we should listen to them. But if they're really not, let them die out. Don't mess with them. This is where Paul breaks with Gamamiel, because Paul goes, oh, no, 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 no. They're blaspheming our traditions. Don't let them get away with that. So, so he's with Gamamiel until we get to this split about what to do with the Jesus sect. Okay? All right. Questions on that so far? I, did, I, I told you it'd be kind of buried under the dump truck. Okay? All right. So, if, that's, if this is the case, then why, what purpose do we have in studying the book of Paul? Books that Paul wrote, his life, uh, everything that he did. Uh, let me make a couple of suggestions why I'm glad you're here and why I'm, I'm grateful for this, that we have this opportunity to dig in the way that we do uh, on the writings of Paul. Number one, uh, have you realized that Paul's writings from, the, from A.D. 50s, 52 and 54, 56, are the earliest writings that we have about the Savior's actual teachings? It's the earliest writings. The book of Mark is another decade after. So Paul isn't necessarily steeped in all the where Jesus went and what he did and the miracles he performed and everything. But what Paul has done and what we have in the book of Galatians and Corinthians, Ephesians, is ta Paul taking the Savior's teachings and boiling them down and putting them into application. That's what, that's what we've got. His writings are the closest that we have to the spring of, of natural water, even though it doesn't have the stories we're used to. But it'll tell you what Jesus was teaching. Now, I believe also that the writings of Paul are our bridge to communicate with other churches. How good are we in the church about understanding the stories of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're not too bad, okay? We're better on the Book of Mormon, but we're not too bad. How are we once we get outside of, we, we walk away from John, and we kind of tiptoe through Acts, and then we get to the other side of Acts, and here's the whole rest of the New, New Testament right before us, and what do we do? Do we know what to do with that? No. Because we can't understand it. There's a variety of reasons why it is that after, after Acts kinds of gets done, then we like... Okay, now we have to endure another six-month of gospel doctrine lessons that nobody understands. <clears throat> but the rest of Christianity loves Paul. If you have, you have uh, Baptist friends and Methodist friends, they love Paul. They love his teachings. They preach from it. They do sermons on it. They love Paul. 
If you're going to talk to other Christians, you need to know Paul. You need to understand Paul. Now, one other thing I, I will mention, I don't want to make this, I, I, I don't intend to make this too academic and too heavy. I just need you to know that there is a movement afoot that's out there in, in uh, New Testament uh, scholarship. Okay, we're going to touch. We're going to touch on it a little bit, but not way too much. Um, Paul's writings at the moment are a source of current academic review and reexamination, and there's a real battle going on out there. This new review of what Paul wrote is called the NPP. It's called the New Perspectives on Paul. And basically, if I'm going to boil down what the what the conversations are about, is that. Paul wasn't just talking about faith, he was talking about grace as faithfulness, requiring an effort on our part. And then we talks about works, that's the law of Moses. So th think about in any discussions that you've had with somebody in Christianity where we talk about, well, is it, are you saved by uh, faith or are you saved by works? And they say, well, no, it says you're saved by grace, lest any man boast. So it's just believe. It's just kind of be born again, right? And then we'd say, well, no, we believe we, you need to be baptized and there needs to be these temple things. And, and they say, well, that's works. And you're trying to say that your works will save you. And that's not what Paul was saying. And so we've had this faith versus works battle that's gone on for centuries. And now at the highest levels, there are the, so many... Um, New Testament scholars and they're being led by uh, a great scholar N.T. Wright who's kind of leading this path to say it was never about faith versus work, works that the idea of faith was faithfulness that it required effort and energy to access grace and that, that's just as much as I'll say alright but just be aware that, that this battle is out there okay yeah works include ministering to our fellow men? Yes, it does. It means getting out there. And, and in fact, Paul himself will say, yes, I was saved by grace, but I work harder than anybody. <laughs> you know, it's like I've worn my life out uh, because grace impels you to keep the commandments and to do things and to reach out and to warn your fellow men. And, and now, as a re-examining, there's a lot of uh, Christian scholars going, wow, man, Paul might have actually been saying that. We might be wrong. And there's a pushback going, no, 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 it's, gra it's just grace. What are you doing? What are you talking about works? You can't, be, you can't save yourself. Paul wasn't saying you can save yourself. Paul was saying that that faithfulness, that grace impels you, and there are certain things that you have to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's why Luther tore James out of his book. <laughs> he did. Because when, when, what happens with, with uh, Martin Luther and Calvin and those is that when they got to this section, they said, no, Paul says you, just ha you, you believe in Christ, then you are saved, and he did not like James. And so James comes out uh, because James is kind of pushing this idea that maybe this isn't exactly what Paul was saying. Okay? All right, so, one more. 
So I believe that one of the, one of the things that we have that, that will make this unique in this class is that we have the chance to go slow enough in, in detail enough to really get a better, get our arms around Paul just a little bit more. But I do think as Latter-day Saints, we have struggled with Paul a lot. And here's some of the ideas that, that I came up with, and you might have some additional ones. For one thing, we don't know, we don't understand Paul. How many, if I asked you right now, how many of Paul's teachings could you name? Could you name Nephi's teachings? Could you name Alma's teachings? Could you name Paul's? We go, no. Okay. Yeah, that's why, that's why we're all here. Exactly. Okay. Now, part of it is his language interpreted through the Middle Ages church. So that, there's two problems. One that I think causes us to get, get to the, the, course, the uh, source of this. Again, when we have books like uh, Wayman's New Translation of the New Testament uh, or some of the other great uh, ways of helping us understand the New Testament and put it in common language, now suddenly Paul becomes much more accessible. So, problem one, we've been trying to read Paul through the King James Version. How fun is that? When was the last time you read through Romans in the King James Version? Is that fun? Holy mackerel! That is just um, a nightmare. Now, put in common language, suddenly Romans is beautiful. Okay? Now, there's one other problem. Um, the King James Version was put together by all the king's men who were all Calvinists. Meaning, when we talk about uh, the, the Calvinistic approach, it says God is the sovereign he sits up here on his throne. He's beyond our ability to understand. And man is pretty worthless. Man doesn't deserve a whole lot. So we're grateful for anything that God does to somehow save a worthless wretch like me. The gap is just way too big. And that, that Calvinistic view is you don't understand God. And by the way, they got their spin from Catholicism that says God is so great and so big, if anybody's going to talk to him, we'll appeal to the middlemen, to Mary, to the saints, and those, and those people will then talk to God. Because we can't make that gap. It's too big. And Joseph Smith came along and said, let me introduce you to the God who weeps. who is in tears at our struggles and, and wants to make us like him. That's a dramatic difference. And if we thought that... But Paul is, not, is, Paul is not presenting this Calvinistic view, but he has been viewed that way. So I want to kind of let you know that Paul saw a very living, loving, caring, direct God. Who he says, Christ lives in me, and I die with him daily. Well, that's different and very personal. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Um, 
So part of it, I'm hoping that as we're able to, to kind of go through newer translations of King James, you start getting a... Let me give you one example. Uh, I think we got a moment. Uh, something I was doing in, in priesthood uh, lesson that I taught yesterday. Um, we've talked about... Uh, you remember when we were talking about the woman that uh, sees Jesus being abused in the house of uh, Simon the Pharisee? And she, and she is so overcome that she doesn't... Uh, she, she sees that his feet are still dirty... And she's, got to, and she's got to do something. She wasn't, didn't come prepared to wash his feet. But she's got she's not nothing. She didn't bring water. She thought they would do that. They're not doing that. So remember that she, she starts to cry. And then she drops down by his feet and begins to take the tears and wash his feet with her tears. Remember that? And then she does the unthinkable that's even worse. She lets down her hair in a place that was not her home, at the feet of a man who's not her, her husband, in a stranger's house, and to wipe his feet with her hair was beyond the pale. And remember that the Pharisees are like, she's a sinner, doesn't he know? And then the Savior makes two important statements there. Here's statement number one. He says to Simon, um, this woman who had many sins... Is, is forgiven. Why? Why was she forgiven? Because she has loved much. Wow. She didn't even go to the temple to do that, to offer sacrifice. She is forgiven because she has loved much. Okay? And then he turns to her. And in essence, he's saying, go your way. Your faith hath saved Thee. That's, that's the Calvinistic version of that. That word saved, sozo, actually means healed. What he's really saying is, you're, you go your way, you were sinning, and your love has healed you. There's a healing. That is Paul. The healing aspect. Not the saving because you should have been thrown to hell kind of thing. That's the difference. King James Version was written by those with a Calvinistic focus. Okay? And, is that deep? But I, I just, we just kind of need to be ready for that. Okay, so. Like we are just talking about, one of the reasons we have a problem, and we think that Paul was maybe teaching that uh, we're saved by faith, uh, and we don't want to really kind of get into that. Um, it's this grace versus works thing. We're going to find out that Paul's on our side. <laughs> now, the other one is kind of interesting is LDS presentism. Uh, in other words, Paul should be looking, it should look then like it looks now. And Paul doesn't necessarily fit the pattern for how the 21st century church operates. Was he a member of the Quorum of the Twelve or not? And what part did he become a quorum of the twelve? Can you be apostle and be outside the quorum of the twelve? Was there twelve? How did they get together to write, keep replacing the quorum of the twelve? Okay. Who was the first presidency? Does that mean that maybe there shouldn't have been 15 of them instead of 12? Uh, because that's not just the way that it works. Uh, and, and Paul, as a matter of that, then should 
turn everything back over to Peter and not battle with Peter at all because, because certainly today the apostles wouldn't be fighting with the president of the church and do it publicly in front of a ward which is what Paul did <laughs> when he called Peter to task in front of the branch in Galatia well that's not just that's just not the way the church does it now dang it and Paul seems to be breaking all the rules so we're not quite sure what to do with Paul yeah President Nelson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. I'm not sure that Paul would have kept his mouth shut. <laughs> he, he, was, he was liable to go off at any time. So, all right. One last piece here. Want well, to know what Paul looked like? I know that Joseph Smith gave us a little bit of a description, uh, but I want to give you actually even a closer one kind of a first century description of the Apostle Paul. Uh, there was a man named uh, Onesiphorus who had heard that Paul was coming to Iconium, went out with his children, Simeus and Zeno, and his wife, Lectra, uh, to meet Paul, that he might receive him into his house. For Titus had told him what Paul looked like. For hitherto he had not seen him in the flesh, but only in the spirit. <laughs> he had had a vision. Paul's coming to... Le to uh, uh, Iconium and we're going to go out to look for him and I think I know what he looks like from a vision but I had a description I got a, of all the people walking across the Roman road we're going to try and pick out which one is Paul okay and he went out along the royal road which leads to Lystra and there came and they're waiting for him and looked at all who came according to Titus's description no, 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 no. And he saw Paul coming. A man small in stature with a bald head and crooked legs. <laughs> in a good state of body, so the rest of his body was okay. With eyebrows meeting. <laughs> he had kind of a unibrow. With eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. <laughs> Joseph Smith pointed out the hooked nose. He had, he had kind of a Roman nose. He was being more nicer. This guy goes, no, he's got a hooked nose. Full of friendliness. And then I love this part. For now he appears like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. So he starts, he looks like another man, but when you start engaging him, he has the face of an angel. He lights up. Okay, so you get this, this idea of this warmth inside this man. Is that great? Okay. All right. So, ah, 30 minutes. Okay. Let's, let's do this. I want to... Let's, let's hop over to Acts 6. And hopefully I can make this work here. I never know. Aha! Very nice. Okay. So, let's talk about the process that gets started. Now, let, let me just say that what's happened at this point is that Paul grows up under Gamaliel. He's taught. He becomes... Um, uh, he goes back to Tarsus for a little while. 
Then he comes back to Jerusalem because he's becoming disturbed by this, the group of Jesus followers that are kind of going crazy here. Okay? So the, what we know from earlier in, in Acts that uh, they've now called uh, seven deacons. And one of them, of course, is Stephen. So let, let's begin with, uh, we get the arrest of Stephen. Okay. Now, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now he's, but he's going to preach. But some from the synagogue of the freedmen, the liberty. Now, who do we know as a freedman? Paul. Paul descends from freedmen in Tarsus. These are people that are Greek. So this is a synagogue being taught where it's being, the language here is Greek. And these are people that have slave ancestry and are zealous Pharisees. So they are they're grateful to God for having saved them and brought them out of slavery. Um, and, and in fact, it's going to get more specific. The synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, both uh, Syrians, Alexandrians, and those from uh, Cilicia. Cilicia is Tarsus. Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia. Okay? So this is, in all likelihood, when Paul's in town, this is his home synagogue. They're speaking in Greek. They are freedmen that he would identify with. This is his people. Okay? And, and Stephen is going to preach in the freedmen um, synagogue. Okay? They're going to argue, but they weren't able to resist him. Uh, so now they're going to haul him off. Uh, they're going to say, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy Jerusalem and change the customs that Moses gave us. By the way, where was the last time we saw that argument? It was at the trial for Jesus in the Sanhedrin. They're holding on to old traditions. Okay? And all were sitting at the council, stared at him. Now I want you to see something interesting. Here's, here's how this reads. All who were sitting at the council stared at him and saw his face like the face of an angel. Oh, wait a minute. Where have we heard the story of somebody standing on trial in front of a council of religious leaders and their face is shining like an angel? Benedict. That's Abinadi in King Noah's court. In all likelihood, this is the story that I think is influencing in some way what is being revealed to Joseph Smith in some way that we don't understand. But the story is so incredibly similar. Okay? So, Stephen, so, so here's what's happening. Stephen does his speech. He's going to give him a history of uh, them being caught up into Egypt. So he's, he's, he's teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. Uh, now he makes an interesting statement here. This is a side note and I don't want to go too far with this, but I just thought it was fascinating. Uh, in telling the story of, Egypt, of Israel caught into Egypt, here's what Paul says. 
Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the desert. Okay, let me stop for a second. What's he referring to? The, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. But he's calling it the tabernacle of testimony. Why might he do that? Why would you call, could we call our temple a temple of testimony? Why would he call a temple a tabernacle of testimony? That's, that's where the law was placed. Sure. And so, so what would make that the testimony? Well, so some people think of the Ten Commandments as the embodiment of the testament. And this is where they kept the fundamental law and the external law that Moses received from the Lord and gave them to them, put it in the Ark of the Covenant, set it in the Holy of Holies. Sure. That's where the testimony is. If you want to go renew your faith, you go there and get somebody to read that to you. Right. And it's a testimony of what? God. Of God. If you said, you know, it's, it's Friday night, uh, I've got some names, I need to take to the, to the temple of testimony. What would you be saying? Would that be accurate? I think it would be. But what exactly would, would you be saying? Testimony of what? Baptism for the Okay, yeah, baptism, yeah. Would you also feel the testimony of your ancestors? Sure. And of the Savior, because when I think of Now, you would have a personal testimony, but, th but think very closely. A testimony of what? Going to the temple as going to this tabernacle would be a testimony of what? The first of all, and, and what is it that you're doing? Well, you're doing the work the Lord wants you to do, and that everything you're doing is, is true. So everything that we do here is true, so it's a testimony of the work. But what does the temple bear testimony of? The Savior. Yes. And what? And what about the Savior? All of those. And that makes sense? That the temple bears testimony to the fact that God keeps his promises. That in his house he makes covenants. That he made covenants that he would redeem our ancestors. The temple is a house of testimony and covenant making. And that God keeps those covenants. I, the more I had to think that through, I thought, well, we don't normally think about that. We'll be back in a couple of hours. We're going to the temple of testimony. We're going to the temple that bears testimony to the fact that God loves us. He bears testimony to the fact that he is out to redeem Israel, that he will redeem all of his people, that there's a testimony that he's made promises, that he will lift us up, that he will change us, that he will bring us back into his presence. Everything that we do in terms of a covenant and a promise made in the temple of testimony is a testimony that God will fulfill what he says he's going to do. Isn't that cool? I just thought that nicely put. Yeah.
Yeah. I will save you. I will be your God. If you will follow, and I, I will keep you alive, I will take care of you. And every time they go to the temple, the law of Moses inside the, the Holy of Holies was going to say, I got you, and I will get you, and I will be there for you. Uh, I, I, just, I just love that, okay? All right. All right, so, the Stony of Stephen. <coughs> Now, let me back up. How come they stoned Stephen? What did he do that caused them to stone, to be stoned? Yeah, he was testifying of Christ in a specific way, though, right? I mean, here's the story that we tend to tell. It's certainly the one that I grew up hearing. It's like, the, he preached... They stoned him, and in the act of stoning, he looks up and he sees Jesus on the right hand of God. Is the story I grew up with. Okay? So at the last moment, he's bearing testimony. You know, don't, don't blame him for this. Look at what happens here. When they had heard him repeating all of these things, repeating what? He'd said, you were given the law, but you didn't follow it think you're so great they heard these things they were enraged they ground their teeth but being filled with the Holy Spirit he looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand and he said behold I see the heavens open the son of man standing on the right hand of God they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed to him as a group now this was this was not an official act of the Sanhedrin there was no trial there was no witnesses one way or the other. This was the act of a mob. But the mob rises up to attack him when he has done what? He's testifying what he's seen. What has he seen? Father. Father and the son. And that son happens to be the criminal that was hung on a tree. So there's two problems here. One, you're elevating this criminal... And you're making him God. And the second is, how many people has he seen? Two. No, we're monotheists. We don't believe in more than one God. There's only one. And so that, there's problems on two areas there. And then they're going to stop their ears. I, I like that. La, 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 No, 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 no. In a rush to, to a group. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Okay? Now, let me back up. Um, whoever the writer was of Luke, uh, whether it was one person, Luke, whether it was a group of people, I, I've told you my opinion is I tend to think it was probably a group of people that included women as part of the writers. Because there's a, a very uh, beautiful uh, support of women and what they're doing and their struggles. Okay? Whoever the writer or writers was of Luke actually has two documents. And the, and the length is about as long as a papyrus might be back then. So we have two books. We have Luke, which is about the Savior's doing. And then we have the book of Acts, 
which is about Paul. The book of Acts is about Paul. Make no mistake. Because everything that happens in Acts is the run-up to the introduction and the travels and the teachings of the Apostle Paul, especially to the Gentiles. And so everything that's happened to this point, the, the stoning of Stephen is to get us to this moment, which is they drag him out of the, out of the city, they begin to stone him, um, and the witnesses uh, laid, at their, laid their cloaks, their outer robe, uh, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen while he prayed, Lord, uh, Jesus, forgive, uh, forgive, receive my spirit. Uh, and then he says, and, and Saul was in agreement with the decision to kill him. Okay? Again, there's enough evidences out there in the, kind of the scholars that I've researched and everything to suggest that probably at this point, if he's not a member of the Sanhedrin, he's certainly an associate of the Sanhedrin. Now, we could look at that and say, okay, Saul is in agreement with that decision. He certainly didn't, the, the Sanhedrin didn't want to be going out just killing everybody because the Romans didn't like that, but a mob can do it. Just a crazy mob that lost themselves and they stoned this guy. Saul's in agreement with that. Uh, and then we find out that on that day, according to the writer of Acts, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all with the exception of the apostles were forced to flee into the countryside of Judea and Samaria, and we know, and Syria, Damascus, okay? Now, some godly men buried Stephen and mourned him loudly, but Saul was devastating the church. Interesting word. Devastating the church. Entering house to house and carrying off men and women and putting them in prison. Now, let me, let me pop out of here for a second here. Paul will say in, in future writings that he was filled with zeal. I had zeal for the law. And in his own writings, he will say in Galatians, For you have heard of my former conduct in, in Judaism, how I violently persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. By the way, from our Book of Mormonness, what is this paralleling? Alma. Alma. Which is interesting, so you go back to that story of Abinadi and Alma. Where's Alma during the stoning of Abinadi? He's sitting on the council, right? And he's hearing the things that Abinadi is saying. Okay? And then he's going to go, then he, okay? So that's where that change occurs. Okay? How I violently persecuted the church of God, tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my peers. 
among my nation, being extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Now, how zealous is he? Yeah, extremely. I imprisoned and beat those who believed in synagogue after synagogue. He will talk about his own experience ultimately in saying, I was beaten five times with a rod. That's what they did. We talk about that the, the, the shepherd's crook and the, and the shepherd's rod. We talked about when we were going through uh, shepherding 101. They had in the synagogues uh, a rod, a cane, that would be used to beat those who were going to be doing wrong things. He, they would, and, and Paul says, five times I was beat with a rod. Now that's made ever more poignant by the fact that what did he do? He beat, uh, he beat Christians, and in all likelihood, some of whom he beat would have been the leaders, who are going to kind of be afraid of him when he shows up. <laughs> How would you feel about the guy that just beat you up to now say, oh, now I believe in Christ and I've decided to join you? That's tough. Okay? Now... How dangerous a problem is, is zeal? A lot of times when people, if you're, if you're atheist and you're agnostic and you bring up that you're Christian, what's the, what's the main attack that happens on Christianity a lot? Why would I believe in Christianity who does what? Kills people. Let's bring up the, the Spanish Inquisition. Let's bring up the Crusades. Let's bring up all the wars that have been fought under Christianity. What's our, what is generally our attack on Islam? Why would, I, why would there be any virtue in a religion that's supposed to be the religion of peace and blows people up? Over and over and over. Oh, so let's believe in, uh, how about Mormonism? It's a good thing Mormonism has been pretty well insulated from zealous stuff. Except for the 165 people killed at Mountain Meadows Massacre. What do we do with, what do we do with, when does religious faith become destructive zealism. Is that a word? Zealous become destructive and zealous. Yeah. I think when you start to see people as objects, like um, it's dangerous because when you're zealous, you're blind to what's around you. Like you have your blinders on, you don't care about humanity, and they start to turn into objects. So you don't care about the world. First thing you got to do is objectify them, right? You know, we're going to go to war against the Nips or the Japs or something. We have to somehow make them less than human. Uh, they, they are infidels, right. Okay. How do we know when we've stepped over? Do you think that what they're doing is harming you in some way? Their beliefs are somehow... Somehow what they believe is going to be harming me in some way. It's going to affect what I believe 
somehow it's harming the church or whatever. Whatever there is, they're trying, they're thinking these people are hurting. Right. You get to that point where you real, but the thing is, you got to realize they're not hurting. If they're wrong, they're only hurting themselves. And they bring a few people down with them, but. But I'm not sure at some point if they're not going to come back around and hurt me. So I've got to somehow eliminate them or marginalize them. And man, we're certainly not doing that in our current political environment, are we? Uh, Anti-Semitism was the same sort of way. Somehow just their presence was a problem. Okay. How How about in Nauvoo? If you were in, if you were in Illinois, in in the early 1840s, just the Mormons' presence was a problem. So that faith and and good intentions begin to be zealousness. When can we do that with with people that uh, have same-sex attraction? Mm-hmm. Can we go zealous instead of? What would be the opposite of zeal of zealism? <laughs> huh? Could be. Yeah, and so that seems to be the other extreme, right? We either go from I'm zealous for the law. Uh, again, uh, Paul says I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Nobody was more zealous than me. Now the other one would be complete apathy. I don't care. Where's the balance point? Yeah. Christ-like love. It's a Christ-like love. Yep. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven because she has loved much. So here's the craziest part about this. In that act of zealousness, the Inquisition, the Crusades, uh, the Barbary Coast, we go on and on and on, all these things, okay? Is there love there? There's zealousness... But there's not love. Not people. Yeah. We might think it's a... Paul would have said while he's busy beating Christians, I, I love the Torah and I love the law. But I'm hating the people that aren't doing it my way. It's not real love. Yeah. When we undertake to cover our sins and to verify yeah and and that that coming from section 121 is is where she's talking about how anytime that we take undertake to use like the, in that case the priesthood to gratify our pride to cover our sins that the spirit withdraws itself. There's no spirit in zealism. There's no spirit in being zealous. There is spirit in loving and caring and being diligent to kind of, uh, and, and, and in fact, they'll give you the anti-zealism thing in there, which is we're going to do it by uh, kindness, meekness, and love unfeigned, right? There's the opposite of that. But a number of the Nephites killed people who disagree with them within their communities. <laughs> to protect the community. Yes, yeah, so, so say, that, say that again a little louder. The, many of the Nephites killed 
the people who came up with other ideas about their religion. Korhor? Right. Yeah? Shiram? They gave them plenty of opportunity, but they caused a lot of damage within their communities before they actually acted. Yeah. Is it possible, and, 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 uh, is this heresy to say, this is what the Nephites did, maybe they shouldn't have? We don't know the whole situation, but I think that's the question that this causes, the Book of Mormon causes us to wrestle. Couldn't, Lame, couldn't Nephi just have tied Laban up? Why did he have to chop his head off? You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Calvin? We had our award conference yesterday, and our state president uh, shared an experience he has that I think brings us down to an everyday level we can relate to. He said when he was on his mission, he had the worst companion ever who was lazy. He didn't want to get up. He didn't want to go out. He didn't want to teach. And he said, I really, really struggled because I, you know, I was gung-ho. I wanted to go do all these things. And he said, when did they have an appointment? And he had a hard time getting his companion out that morning. And he was just loitering along. And he said, we've got to hurry. We're not going to get there on time. And his companion still just hung back. And so he said, I started walking really fast and turned around and saw he was way back there. And he said, I got so frustrated. I went back and said, so do you want to just go home and forget the whole thing? And his companion said, yes. And he said, then he was kind of stuck because he assumed he could guilt him into you know, right. stepping it up. So he said they went home, and he said he was just so upset that he said, I went back, and I knelt down, and I was going to pray that I could forgive him for being such a terrible companion. And he said, the answer I got was, I'm not concerned about your companion. I'm concerned that you need to repent for the feelings you have toward your companion. <laughs> and he said it was I was doing what I should have been doing. I was doing everything right, and he wasn't. <laughs> but he, then, then he was talking about the importance of repenting and forgiveness and how, how they were together. <laughs> I think that's a good example. I was doing everything right. I was doing everything I should be doing, and he wasn't. And yet I'm the one who is called to repentance. No, <laughs> is, that, is that present cats? No. Uh, it's, not ca it's not cats yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. The destruction of the press in Nauvoo. Yeah. I, I would include uh, when, when the Nauvoo uh, Council decided to destroy the expositor. Um, was it on one side, I can see why Joseph felt like he was legal he could legally do it but it was his biggest mistake and he would have said it was my biggest mistake and it, actually led to and it, it was the very thing that led to his death right yeah so sometimes that so I, I guess that the lesson on this is as we're watching Paul again we're watching we're watching people struggling with how they handle what they believe and I think there's a point we can go uh, very zealous, and in our zealousness, we might hurt people. In our zealousness for the law, we might be driving people out of our wards or out of our midst that really needed to have been here. And, but we're trying to protect the, the sanctity of, of what we're trying to do. Okay? 
and in the midst we may be losing people. And that, that's a, it is a, I think this is a very pertinent issue we could probably take a couple of classes on. Yeah? We're infringing on the judgment process when we, when we do that. As a teacher, I had a little girl that was misbehaving in class and being disrespectful, and I took her outside in the hall, and her first comment to me was that you don't know what's going on at home. Yikes. And so we don't, we don't have the right to, to judge others. No, we really don't. Okay, we got uh, just a couple of minutes. I'm going to jump ahead. There's a... Um, Yeah, let's pick this up next time. Uh, you know, you can still go. You can still go to the, the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Um, but anyway, that's one. Yes, that's one of the shoes. I think it was one of Peter's shoes. And I and and by the way, I guarantee you, there are places in the old city you could buy Peter's shoe. And millions have. Yeah, you buy Peter's shoe and actually part of the cross if you really want to. We've got this one for, for, for a price. Okay. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to finish with, with this uh, quote from N.T. Wright that I just, that really kind of jumped out at me. Um, here's what he says uh, The first century church is a love story. A story of ordinary, often frightened, but faithful men and women who went out to bring healing, education, freedom, and hope to a world where such things had before only been available to a tiny minority. And they did so because they were following Jesus. In that love story, new knowledge emerged because the followers of Jesus were opening up new ways to be human. I just, I just think that's amazing. Again, we, we look at, sometimes people look at our, at our own church history and we look at the things that happened in Kirtland that should or shouldn't have happened or things that happened in Nauvoo that should or shouldn't have happened or Salt Lake in 1850 that shouldn't or shouldn't have happened and what people might have said or done that might have been wrong or might offend our sensibilities now. Or they made decisions that affected the church positively and negatively. Um, our, church, our, our history is messy. Why? Because like the first century church in, in uh, Israel, our own church is a love story. And it's a story of ordinary, often frightened, but faithful men and women going out to bring healing, education, and freedom and hope to a world around them. And so when we look at someone like Paul and his zealousness, or we look at uh, Nephi and we wish that he'd found another way maybe to handle things with Laban, or, or whatever, we're looking at people making the best decisions they know how to make. And sometimes they were right and sometimes they were wrong. Then I think we look at our own wards and our own experiences in our own wards and, our, and bishops. Well, I had a good bishop or a bad bishop. Or I had a Relief Society president who said this, and I can't believe that young women's leader said this to me, and said this to my kid. Yeah, boy, we make a lot of mistakes. And sometimes they're hurtful. 
But I think at the end of it, we're just trying to do the best we know how to do. And the love has to go both ways, not only from the leader to the people, but from the people to the leader. It's all of history is this topic you're talking about, finding that balance between trying to do what's right and loving people. Tough, isn't it? And so I, I think sometimes that gets missed. Like, like yesterday, we were in the, the middle of you know, sus doing some sustainings. And the minute that we say, okay, can you sustain the bishopric in this action? Yeah, we're going, okay, I, I will love that person all, with all their warts. I will love them when they do good stuff. I will love them and support them when they do bad stuff. I will hopefully be able to be supportive and hope that they recognize things. But sometimes they're not going to recognize things and I just have to love them instead. And, and hope that they'll finally catch on. That's hard. That's hard in a group of people where we're going to grab our leaders from amidst, or the middle of us and, and then love them even though we know them pretty well. So that, that, that's, my, that's my testimony as we roll forward with Paul. We're going to we're going to see, we're going to get to see very clearly uh, a wonderful, incredible, dynamic leader who uh, saved Christianity literally, almost personally, by moving the church from Israel, planting it deeply in, in the middle of the Roman Empire, where three centuries later it takes over the Roman Empire. It goes from little house churches to massive churches like the Basilica in Rome and the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, this Christianity just explodes. And it's going to come primarily through the instrumentality of Paul's energy and drive in his good times and bad. Uh, and I'm grateful we have a chance to do this. And I leave this with you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>